Well, this is Easter. This is a good day. I hope you're excited. I'm excited about being here today. Um, I like to do something special on Easter. Normally, when uh, we come to the preaching, we, uh, we go through books of the Bible. We go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, passages at a time. But on Easter, I like to do a whole book of the Bible all at once. And two years ago, we did Ecclesiastes. Last year, we did Esther. Uh, This year, we're going to do the book of Ruth. And so if you're using one of those white Bibles in front of you, uh, Ruth is on page 246. The book of Ruth is one of the only, uh, was one of uh, two books in the Bible named after a woman. And we're told in the beginning of the book of Ruth that it takes place during the time of the judges. Now the judges is a dark time in the life of Israel. So I want to set this up before we get in there. They had just come into the promised land. They had just begun to possess the land that God had promised them that they were going to have. And rather than trust in God, kind of as Chris was just saying, sometimes we take the good things God gives us and we pervert them. Rather than trust in God, they begin to rebel against God. And Judges, which is the book right before Ruth, it ends. The last line of Judges says, they did what was right in their own eyes. And what that means is that they did not care about God. They did not care about His glory. They cared about their glory. They cared about making a name for themselves. This is really what the Bible calls sin. Rather than trusting God, rather than living for Him, we live for ourselves. And so I want to give you two reasons why we're in the book today, the book of Ruth. Number one, uh, because we want to do what's right in our own eyes also. Where Ruth takes place, where they're doing that, we live there also. The world says your story is important. Translation, you should make a name for yourself. Do what makes you happy. You get to determine what is right and wrong. In fact, you can determine and shape your life however you want. You can... uh, If life is a 10 trillion piece jigsaw puzzle, and I mean like from the beginning of creation till when Christ returns, then we like to think that the 10 pieces that make up our life are the most important parts of that puzzle. And the culture says your story is so important that everyone else ought to like your story and know your story, and now we can do that, right? with Facebook, with Snapchat, with Instagram. You can put your life out there at all times. You can have a digital storyboard of your life at your fingertips 24-7. And the incredible thing is you can shape it however you want. You can make the good times look so much better online. You can make the bad times not look so bad. You have the power to make your life, and here's my made-up word of the day, pentristically amazing. Right, You can just make it look awesome. And people are just liking it going, that's incredible. And so Ruth has a message for us. And in Ruth, we're going to see that our story only makes sense when we see it in the much larger story of what God is doing in Jesus Christ. You see, we are not the main characters. We are supporting characters. Jesus Christ is the main character. And we see that in the book of Ruth. Now, another reason, because we do what is right in our own eyes, this world is full of darkness and misery. That's an effect of sin in this world. And you might be here today, and as as we talk about, we can make our lives as pentristically awesome as we want. 
You're sitting here thinking, well, my story doesn't matter. In fact, when you look at all the digital storyboards around you, you go, I have no desire to put my story out there. I don't want people to know it, and I know nobody wants to hear it. My life is not interesting. You feel as though you're on the outside. Even when you're with people, you feel like you're just not with them. You know what I mean? You're there, but it's okay if you're not there. Joy and happiness have moved away from you a long time ago, and in their place, loneliness and sadness have moved in. And you might be here today, and you just feel the weight and the pressures of this world on you. You feel like there's a giant weight, and it's been pressing on you for a long time. And you begin to wonder, how much more can I actually bear? Is there hope? Can there really be an all-powerful, loving God in all this darkness and all this misery actually exist? And then what we're going to see in the book of Ruth is that God loves to work in those dark situations. And he loves to use those who are on the outside, those who feel like they cannot be used. And he loves to bring them into his family and use them for incredible purposes. The book of Ruth, one thing we see is darkness does not have the last word but our god does and so as we begin there's going to be four scenes in the book of ruth uh there's four chapters so it breaks up one uh one scene per chapter and so before we dig in i'm going to go ahead and pray and then we will start our father god it's easter and we are excited we are excited about being here today god we thank you uh, for this time that we can gather around your word around the word that you have given us and inspired us with your full authority. And Lord, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Give us wisdom. Give us understanding. Lord, help us to see that that pursuing what is right in our own eyes only ends in despair and failure, but trusting in you, there's life, there's joy, there's comfort. And God, help us to see that today. God, bless this time. Bless the preaching of your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. Uh, normally what we do is we stand when we read God's word, but we're not going to do that today because we're kind of going through the whole book. Uh, and no fear, we're not reading the whole book. If you've been wondering, we're only going to read bits and pieces. When we preach through a whole book, we can't say everything that we want to say. So you're going to have questions. There's going to be things that you're going to say, hey, what about this? We're not going to be able to get to everything. So sorry, uh, having to be a little bit particular here. If you have your Bibles, chapter 1, verse 1, though. We'll read the first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So we begin, and there is a famine in the land. And there's irony here, because Bethlehem means house of bread, and yet there's no bread in Bethlehem. 
Now, the reason that there's a famine, as we understand uh, from other parts of God's word, he tells us, if you do not follow me, if you reject me, if you walk away from me, I will bring a famine onto the land and other things. Now, the purpose of this is grace. It's that he would lead his people back to him. They would see the famine. They would understand it reveals the spiritual famine of their hearts, that they're not trusting in God, and that they would turn, repent, and trust in him. But what we see here is that we have a family who rather than trust in God and repent, they leave the land. They completely reject God. They leave the land that God has given them. And we see it's Elimelech, the husband. He's got a wife, Naomi, two sons, and they're going to Moab. Now, to have three men in the family at this culture, in this time, those are the ingredients of success. It's an agrarian culture. This isn't sexist or feminist or anything. Well, not feminist. It's not sexist, uh, but uh, it's... It's simply the truth of we need men to go out into the fields, men to work, men to gather, men to move the oxen and all these hard, difficult things that they would be able to to provide for the family. And so when we have two strong sons and we have a husband, they're going to make it. They have everything they need. This is a powerful, this is a strong family. Elimelech is leaving in great confidence. And they're going to Moab. Now let me just explain Moab. Moab's a cursed people. In Genesis, we come across a guy named Abraham. He's he's pretty important. And he has a nephew named Lot. And Lot has daughters. The daughters have sex with Lot, the dad. That's where Moab comes from. So it's an incestuous people. When Israel comes out of Egypt, they hire a prophet to go call curses down on, on Israel. When that doesn't work, they send their women over to the Israelite men to seduce them so they begin worshiping false gods and thus become, be able to overcome them. Moab is a thorn in Israel's flesh. And so, first and foremost, what what. Uh, Elimelech is doing, it's not just an act of despair running to a place where there's food. It's an act of disbelief in God. He is fully rejecting God, going to a place where he should not go, to a place that has been cursed. Now, this isn't a, a, a racial or an ethnic cursing. This is a religious thing. He's doing what is right in his own eyes. He doesn't really care if God likes it because God's plan didn't work. Have you ever felt like that? God's plan didn't work. He gave it time, he thinks. You know what? You didn't work in my timetable. My family's hungry. Someone's got to feed them. God, if you're not going to do it, I will do it. And so he says, you know what? I'll do what's right in my own eyes. And so he takes off to Moab. What's the result? Ten years later, no children, no sons, no husband. That is the result. Ingredients to success have now turned to ingredients in failure. We only have two young Moabite women, and we have an older woman who most likely is past childbearing age. So we've gone from great hope, from fullness, to now emptiness, to nothing. Naomi is left. She has no hope, nothing to boast in. She's left Bethlehem full, and now she is empty. Hear this. Rebellion against God, to do what is right in our own eyes. When we make our story paramount above God's and everything else, failure is always the result. And we'll see that more later. 
And so you wonder, well, is there hope? What's going to happen? Then we come to verse 6. And in verse 6 we see God has visited Bethlehem and He's provided food. So Naomi says, look, I'm going back to Bethlehem. And we read, if you have your Bibles, verse 8. This is a conversation between her and her two daughters. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her she says you should stay in moab in moab you have hope in moab you have everything you need you're able to be married you will you will have a life for yourself if you come with me you have nothing she's too old she can't provide children there's no hope for them and really bringing moabite women back into bethlehem probably not a good idea so good worldly wisdom plays out orpha says you know what you sold me i'm out check you later That's where she's at. But Ruth says, no, I will not leave. And in verses 16 and 18, we have the most famous lines in the entire book. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me more. Also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. This is incredible. Ruth says, look, I get it. Moab, I have a life. There's success. There's there's a reality there. I would rather go with you, be with you, be with your people, and your God be my God and have nothing than have everything in Moab. You see what's happening here? She's trusted in God. She's trusting in this God to provide for them. She says, look, I'd rather be with God and God's people and have nothing than have everything in this world. The crazy thing is, where does she come with this faith and this love? Most likely, Elimelech and Naomi and the sons, they talked about the God of Israel, and somehow God, in their talking and maybe other stories, had just, by His grace, brought Ruth to begin trusting in him and she counts it more valuable to be in Bethlehem with nothing but have God and his people than to be in Moab and have everything and so now that they're going to make their way back to Bethlehem when they enter all the people come Naomi you're back and she says well don't call me Naomi her name means pleasant one she says call me Mara the bitter one She doesn't have anything. She looks at her life. She's got nothing. We already saw in verse 13, I think it is, she said, the hand of God has been against me. I have nothing. Don't call me pleasant. There is a darkness in this world. And Naomi has experienced it. Sometimes it lasts weeks. Sometimes it lasts months. 
For Naomi, it's been over a decade that it's been lasting. There's pain and there's misery. And maybe, maybe that's where you're at today. And maybe you feel that weight. Maybe you're beginning to go in one of those seasons. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're on the tail end of it. I just want to say, keep an eye on Naomi as we go through this. This book could have been called Naomi, and we never would have thought twice about it. It begins with her, it ends with her, and she's all in the middle of it too. So Naomi uh, is a key figure here. But look at verse 22 in chapter 1. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. A harvest is coming. Harvest is coming. So the chapter ends. There's some hope here. We don't necessarily know what's happening, but there is hope. Perhaps God is not abandoning his people. Perhaps God is doing something that we're not expecting. And so that's where we come into chapter 2, scene 2, and I titled it A Glimmer of Hope. And if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, we see now, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now this, whoever wrote this, is an amazing storyteller. You just throw these keys in, you're like, all right, so there's a guy named Boaz, and you keep reading. And then later you're like, oh, this means something, this means something. And you see he's dropping hints all along the way. In verse 2, Ruth says she's going to go out into the field and she's going to gather food. In verse 3, we see that uh, she just so happens to work in Boaz's field. Look at verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field and the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Now the literal meaning there is she, uh, she chance chanced upon. So the way the author is writing that is so that we go, hold on here. This isn't just luck. There's some divine providence that's happening here. And so let me, let me explain. Toward the end of my junior year in college, I had seen a girl that I wanted to talk to. But at the, it was at the beginning of the year. I didn't get to talk to her. And so now we move to the beginning of the senior year. And uh, so our school, it's a small town. And in this small town, all the uh, businesses in the city would come to the school uh, in the beginning of the year, and there was some event, and they would set up booths, and they gave stuff away. So what do poor college students do? We all show up. We don't even care what it is. We just take stuff. Yes, we need more pens. I'm sure we do. And whatever else it is. Um, well, so I, I knew this is where I needed to be. And so I had previously bought a, uh, a boxer puppy. She's about eight weeks old at this moment. And so I'm on a mission, and my mission is to go find this girl. And so I bring the puppy. I'm at the event, and guess who's there? I just happened to see the girl I was wanting to find. And I just happened to stand right behind her at one of the booths. Now the problem is that's where the plan had stopped. I hadn't really figured out what I would say. So I'm standing behind her with a puppy going, I got nothing at this moment. What do I do? What clever thing can I say? And so I look at the puppy, I look at her, light bulbs go on, and I just kind of toss the eight-week-old puppy. <laughs> and the leash wraps around the girl's ankles, and she goes, oh my, I've tripped over your dog. Oh, did you? <laughs> well, that's crazy. <laughs> I didn't see that coming at all. Not one bit. 
See, in her perspective, she just happened to get tangled up with my dog. But as I've told you the story, and I use the word happened and happened and happened, you know that there was nothing that just happened. I stalked her. <laughs> right? I went on a mission. I threw my dog around her, and I stalked her. And two years later, I married her. So if you need dating advice, don't come to me. I got nothing. Really. Um, so, but the point is, is that as we read this word happened here, it's not an accident. God is working. He's providentially has brought Ruth to this land. And I just want to say, you're here today by God's plan. I hope you know that. When we come to God's word, it shows that he's in charge of everything. There's nothing that takes place outside of his rule, outside of his plan. And so in God's plan, you are here today, not first and foremost because your alarm went off, not because you decided, not because someone invited you. Those are all factors, but first and foremost because God has brought you here, here to be with these people, here to sing these songs, here to experience his fellowship, and here to hear this word. God is working We may not see it. We may not know what is happening. It may be 10 or so years later before we know what he is doing. But God has been working for 10 or so years here that he would bring Ruth from Moab and bring her right into this land. And guess what happens? In verses 4 through 6, we see Boaz just happens to visit the fields that day. He just happens to see Ruth that day. He just happens to inquire about her that day. And then he goes up to her and he tells her, In verses 8 and 9, I will protect you. I will protect you. Do not go to another field. You stay in my field. I have told my men they will not come near you. Now think about this. This is a young, beautiful girl. She has no protector. She has no man in her life. She's young. She's poor. She's trying to just get by. She's vulnerable, right? Any man could come and just take this girl. And Boaz says, you are safe with me. And he provides for her and he gives her food. Naomi and Ruth in verse 10, she says, why do you do this? And read what Boaz says in verses 11 through 12. He says, but Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Don't miss this. This girl's an outsider. She doesn't belong. She's a foreigner. All in chapter 2, she's referred to as Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. She's got the big scarlet letter on her. Everyone knows she doesn't belong. She's the outsider of outsiders here. And Boaz comes and says, I've heard of your great love. I've heard of how you've come to trust in God. And how you've come under his wings and under his refuge. And so this isn't God repaying Ruth, saying, man, Ruth, you actually, you're pretty impressive. I'm impressed you left Moab. Uh, Here, let me pay you back. No, what we're seeing here, this is grace. Grace brought her from Moab, and grace is now providing for her and protecting for her, and it's coming through Boaz. Hear this. Life is not about power, prestige, and possessions. That's what we think, and that's what we want to make it about. But here's a girl. She has absolutely nothing, and yet God is taking care of her. 
True blessings come for those who take refuge in God. We'll come back to that more. At the end of verse, at the end of the day, in verses 17 and 18, we see that she has this epa of farley, of bar, farley, of barley. That's like, uh, that's like 50 pounds. Now, the way I equate that to, I was at Home Depot the other day, and there was a 50-pound bag of concrete. Now, I'm just imagining this young 20, 22-year-old girl holding this big 50-pound bag of barley trying to make it like back to her house, a mile, however far it is, God's provided abundantly. Or she has an abundance amount of food. So she goes back, and, and Naomi says, so, so what happened? And, and she tells her, well, I just happened to go into Boaz's field. And look at verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said in her said to her, the man is a, cl- is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. That's another one of those little hints. Just dropping. That's important. And we'll come to that later. But notice, what does Naomi say? This God is blessed? Well, hold on. I thought earlier God had cursed her. I thought she only knew bitterness and, ex- bitterness and pain and misery because God's hand was against her. Maybe God's hand's not against her as much as she thought. Maybe God's been working in a way much more powerful than she was able to see at that moment. And that's kind of all we know here at this time. Scene number three, we come into chapter three, a daring proposal. Now this is, this is a crazy chapter. Naomi sees what's happening between Ruth and Boaz. She's like, man, he provides for her, he, he does all this, he likes her. And she looks at Ruth as she lights up as she's like, man, this guy named Boaz, she's like, he likes her or she likes him. So she's now the matchmaker and she's like, check this, I will help you. She gives her a puppy and they go off. No, she doesn't give her a puppy. That would have been awesome. She says, look, wash up, dress up, perfume up, go to the threshing floor. Boaz is going to work all day. He's going to be at the threshing floor. He's going to be worn out. He's going to sleep there. What you're going to go do, all dressed up, is go lift up his gown, expose his legs, and you're going to lay at his feet, and he'll tell you what to do. Now, do you know what legs could also be translated as and very commonly translated? It's genitals. She's saying, go, go expose this man. And go let him know. Now, it's probably not what she's actually saying, but as readers, that's what he's wanting us to think. And there's, there's something kind of scandalous. There's sexual tension built into this passage where we have a young woman going to an older man, lifting up the gown, most likely not to expose uh, him because we know that she is a, a worthy woman. We read that in the book. Uh, he's a worthy man. But there's definitely sexual tension here. And she's now going to lay at his feet, and he will tell you what to do. Now, I just want you to think there's a high risk here. What is Boaz going to do? He's a worthy man. Is he going to wake up and see this woman? What are you doing, Ruth? I thought you were a worthy woman. You're throwing yourself at me? You're a Moabite. Are you trying to stain my name? And he could toss her out. That very likely could happen. Or he could wake up and be like, she clearly is making a sexual advance towards me. I'll just take her right here, right now in the barley, in the barley barn. That could clearly happen. What's he going to do? Well, he says, he wakes up, and he says, who is there? It's dark, he doesn't see. This is what Ruth says in verse 9. Spread your wings over your servant, 
for you are a redeemer. Ruth says, marry me. I want you. I love you. Marry me. If you remember, back in chapter 2, verse 12, the spreading of the wings, there uh, we were told that Ruth had taken refuge under the wings of God. And now clearly Ruth is saying, you are the means in which God is providing for me. Spread your wings over me. Take care of me. Redeem me. Marry me. So let me explain real quick what a redeemer is. In Israel, there was, a, there was a law that was given that if a husband dies and left a widow, a brother or nearest relative would marry that widow and they would have a child. But that child would then take the name of the deceased husband, father. And this was a way, and the redeemer could also buy back the land and he could, so that way, the land would stay in the family's name. This is a strange and gracious way that God worked so that no family's name would be erased from Israel and no one would lose their land. So it was a means of grace. Strange today. We don't do this. That would be crazy. Uh, but it was common in that day where this is the work of a redeemer, how he would come and take care and buy back the land and provide for the family. And so Boaz says, yes, oh, I'll redeem you, but, and there's always a but, isn't there? There's always a plot twist and a good story. And so he says, but actually, there's a closer redeemer than me. I'm not first in line. Someone else has dibs here. And so at the end of the chapter, we see Naomi goes back, or Ruth goes back to Naomi and tells her what's happened. And in chapter 3, verse 18, this is what Naomi says, Wait, my daughter, for the man will not rest, but he will settle the matter today. And so we're left with wondering, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? So we go to chapter 4, a new and better story. And in chapter 4, verse 1, Boaz is at the gate. He's looking for the Redeemer. And guess who just happens to come by? The Redeemer, the guy who's near. So he calls him in. In verse 1, he says, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. Now the word friend is actually translated, so, or is actually, the actual Hebrew is so-and-so. We're not even given his name. We're just so, this is Mr. So-and-so. And you'll see why in a few moments. He has no name in this story. Boaz says in front of all the elders, will you redeem Naomi's land? Do you want this land? And he sits and he thinks, yeah, yeah, I want the land. Yes, totally. I mean, this is good for me. More land, more money, right? This is exactly what I want. And then Boaz says, great. <clears throat> when you do that, you'll also marry Ruth and uh, if you have any children, then sh that child will take the land. Now the guy's going, oh, well, that doesn't sound like a good idea. So you want me to take care of Ruth, take care of Naomi, and if she has a child, then that child ends up getting all the land. So I'm basically supporting these people, and then the child gets everything, and I get nothing? Well, too much cost. It's, it's, not, a, it's not good in my own eyes. It's not going to advance my story. It doesn't make my kingdom any bigger or any better. So no, I'm out. So he declines, which Boaz then turns to the elders right then and says, I'll do it. I'll do it. 
I'm in. I'll marry her. I'll redeem her. No problem. No questions asked. And pretty much the rest of the chapter, blessing upon blessing upon blessing, that's what we read. Notice verses 13 through 15. We're going to zoom in on Naomi a little bit. And what happens? So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his, became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. She couldn't bear a son for ten years. But one night with Boaz, now God has opened the womb, and she is going to bear a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave, gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. So just picture this here. We have Naomi. She's bouncing a little Obed on the knee. The women are coming around. You're so blessed. You're so blessed, Naomi. Do you see how blessed you are? And Ruth, she is better to you. This Moabite, foreigner, outsider, she is so much better to you than if you had seven sons. I want you to think, we begin the story She's in a powerful family. Got Limelech, got two sons. They're good. They're powerful. They're strong. They're going to make it. God doesn't just restore her to what she thought was good in the, in the original. He gives her something so much better. This Ruth is far better to you than seven sons. Hope you see, darkness does not have the last word in the word of God. Those who come and take refuge in God will never experience the true, utter darkness of judgment. But there is hope, and there is life, and there is joy. So what's the child's name? Verse 17, his name is Obed. He's the grandfather of David. He's the one who's said to be the man after God's own heart. <clears throat> so what is, the, what is the answer to everyone doing what's right in their own eyes? What's the answer to that? is to have a king, a godly king, who leads his people in righteousness. So here we go. The beginning, we have everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes, people fleeing the land. And at the end, we see through Ruth, a Moabite, an outsider, God has been working to secure his line that would bring about David. The man after God's own heart, who would unite the people and would lead them into trusting God and not rebelling against him. Isn't that good news? So you're saying, well, that's great, Nick. That's really cool. We could have done this like any other Sunday, right? Like, why on Easter are we in this passage, this book? Like, what does this have to do with Easter? Because David is not ultimately the answer, the answer or the solution for those who do what's right in their own eyes. But rather, David will also have a son. Now, he will be the great, 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 great grandson of David. But when David is reigning, 
God will come to him and say, I will bless you with a son, and he will rule forever, and his kingdom will last forever, and his dominion will go to the ends of the earth. He will never be dethroned. He will lead in perfect righteousness. And do you know who that son is? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. What we have here in this story, when Elimelech rebels against God, and it looks like he's throwing his hands in God's face, God's actually using that right there. And as he goes to Moab in complete rebellion, God is using that. And he brings, brings Ruth, 10 years later, back into the land. Not just to be a part of God's people now, not just to marry anyone, but to marry a particular person, Boaz, who would redeem, who would then one day see that through Ruth would come David, who eventually would bring about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who truly is the solution to us doing what is right in our own eyes. When we come back to that 10 trillion piece jigsaw puzzle, it's not about Elimelech. It's not about us. We're in there, but we're a supporting characters all as the main picture. The main character is about Jesus Christ coming to die on a cross so that we who have done what is right in our own eyes, who have rebelled against God, who have sinned against God, and that's what God's word says, all of us are like that, so that we'd be forgiven through the blood of Jesus and that we'd be brought into his family forever. The solution to doing what is right in our own eyes is Jesus Christ. That's why Ruth is so important. Because ultimately we see it's how God brings about the line that will bring about Jesus. You see, the greatest story is not our story. No, our story, our story is good. It's not great enough, though. Our story only finds true value and true meaning and true purpose when we see it's a part of a much larger story. So I want you to think about, real quick, Mr. So-and-so, and we got Elimelech and Orpah. What are they pictures of? They're pictures of those who reject Jesus, right? That's who they are, who reject the plan of God, <coughs> who say, I'd rather do what is right in my own eyes than follow you, God. Mr. So-and-so, we don't, even, we don't even know his name. Elimelech dies. Orpah, she goes back to Moab. We never hear anything again. They miss out on the promises and the blessings of God because they wanted their story more important. And you might be like Elimelech here today. And you might be like the Mr. So-and-so today. And life might actually be going really good for you. And you're looking, you're going, man, I have a spouse. I got boys. I got girls. I got a dog. Don't have cats. Um, You might have a new house. You might have gotten a raise. Everything is looking good. If you want to buy something, for the most part, you can. You got good credit. Your story looks really good. And so while I'm advocating, saying there's actually a much better story, you're going, ah, my story's good. Why why would I want to believe in this Jesus? Why would I want to give up living for my story and live for, for this other story? Why do I need to trust in Jesus. And so I want to read a passage. This is uh, from the Gospels, Luke chapter 12, verse 13. So someone comes to Jesus, and this is what they say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man 
produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and not rich towards God. Listen, what we're told is that if we pursue, if we go after things in our own eyes, if we pursue our story over God's story, you might have worldly success. You might get really good things. And I'm not against people having good things. The Bible's not against that. But if we do not trust in God, then what we hear is there's a judgment that awaits. We will be called fool, for one day we will stand before God, and he will say, you decided to reject me. You lived for your story rather than mine. You did what was right in your own eyes rather than did what was right in my own eyes. You thought you were God rather than submit to me as God and king. And at that moment, we will have no better chance resisting the wrath of God than a spider web can resist a rock being thrown at it. God's wrath will come, and it will come, and it will press, and it will be a fiery hell for all of eternity. And that is not me. That is what God's word says. And so if you're here tonight, and you have been living for your story, know that you're here for a reason. It's not just because your alarm went off. God has brought you in here that you would hear there's a much greater story. And whatever joy, whatever comfort you think you have now, just as Ruth is much better than seven sons to Naomi. So God has a much greater life. That doesn't mean necessarily we'll have all the worldly blessings we want. We might. God might bless that way, but we're guaranteed to have the joy and eternal life that comes from God, and we will live with him forever. In the new heavens and new earth, we will possess everything with God. Now, perhaps you're here, and you've been in a long season of darkness, and you say, look, that sounds great. That sounds really, really good. Um, But there's no way God would want me. You sit there and you say, look, I'm too broken. I'm too damaged. I'm too far on the outside. You don't know what I've done. God doesn't want that. No way. The cross stands as God's exclamation mark that any who come and take refuge under his wings, meaning trust in God, trust in Jesus, he will receive every single one of them, bring, give them forgiveness, and adopt them into his family. And what's crazy, he doesn't just adopt us into his family, and we're like those sub, you know, lower siblings that not really cared about. What we're told in Romans 8, God will make us co-heirs with Jesus. Well, what does Jesus, the Son of God, what does he possess? Everything. And God says, you, as the outsider, as the Moabite, the one who thinks they're too damaged, oh, when you come and you take refuge in Jesus Christ and you believe in him, you become an heir with Jesus in the kingdom of God, meaning you possess all things. In Revelation chapter 3, we are told, one of my favorite verses, Jesus sits on the throne of God with the Father. And we're told we will sit right there with him. The outsider, because of the cross, is able to come right into the very presence of God. And so there is no one here who has done anything too 
much, who has done anything, and they're too broken or too damaged or too much of an outsider. God knows your story, and he's brought you here today to hear the story of the gospel, that you would repent and that you would trust in him this morning. Now, I have one last. Perhaps you're here and you're a Christian. And you've been a Christian maybe for a long time. But perhaps you've begun to stop trusting in God at some point. It's not that you were consciously trying to rebel against God, but you just slowly began to do things in your own eyes rather than in God's own eyes. You've moved away from the Bible. You've moved away from prayer. Perhaps today is the first time you've been back in church. Um, You haven't been in church much, maybe. You've been living under the motto, do what is right in your own eyes. And I encourage you, repent today. Trust in Jesus. Don't trust in a decision made 20, 30 years ago. No, what we're told is that when God saves us, he gives us a new life. A life that we would live for him. Salvation's not about a one-time event. It's about being saved in Jesus, having his spirit in us, adopted into his family, brought into his kingdom, that we would have a brand new life. Now, that doesn't mean we don't sin. It doesn't mean we don't ever fall. It doesn't mean like Chris was here earlier. Sometimes we go through those seasons. Sometimes we battle with doing what is right in our own eyes. But if you've been living in your own eyes, trusting in yourself more than God, then I encourage you, then turn back to God today. No, the cross stands there as the guarantee that all who come to him asking for forgiveness will be forgiven. So do not fear. Repentance is not something we as Christians need to be ashamed of or run from. It is God's grace working in us that we would come to him and that we know that his arms will be wrapped around us. So if you're here today and you've been a Christian, or you're a Christian, but you know you've kind of left how God has called you, trust in him today. Come back. Know that he receives you with open arms. Let me close by reading Philippians 2 verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is our King. Every knee will bow, in heaven, under heaven, on the earth, every knee will bow. And I encourage you to bow now to him in great submission and joyful submission that he actually is God, that he's the father who loves us and sent his son for all those who reject him, for continue to do what is right in their own eyes. You will bow. It's not a question of if. You will bow. And you will bow because of the hand of God's wrath upon you, forcing you down. And I don't want that for any one of us. Let us trust in God today. He sent his son Jesus that we would have life. Trust in him. Let's not live and do what is right in our own eyes. Let's do what is right in God's eyes. There's life, there's joy, there's comfort. Let's pray. And I'm going to have the men come forward and we'll take communion. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for Easter. That God, you've sent your son Jesus and you have risen. God, you have risen from the grave. You have conquered sin, death, and Satan. God, there's so much joy because of that. We have life because of you. And so, Father, I pray 
I pray that if there's anyone who's here who has not trusted in you, that now, just through your spirit working in them, they would trust in you. They would say, I don't want to live and do what is right in my own eyes anymore. I want to trust in you. So God, I just pray. If there's anyone here who's not trusting you, work in their hearts today. May we not be so proud and think that we don't need to do this. But God, may we trust in you today. May we know that you've sent your son Jesus, that we can have life. Father, we love you. In your name, Jesus, amen. And one question, so is that all I need to do? Just pray a prayer and I'll become a Christian. It's a good question. Uh, Yes and no. Just because you pray doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just Just because you're in the garage doesn't mean you're a car, Right? So, so don't, don't mistake that. Um, when we say trust in Jesus, when we say pray to him, we're saying fully submit to God. Begin living for him now. We're not talking about a one-time thing. We're talking about total submission to God, that we would now live for him and for his glory and no longer for ours. And so, yeah, it can be as simple as a prayer, and that's where it begins. It doesn't necessarily even have to start that way, but it's talking about fully trusting in God beginning to live for him. Now, that doesn't mean, again, we're perfect. We're all going to mess up. We're all going to stumble. I stumble regularly. Chris, as he was up, said that. You can talk to any Christian here. Um, We've all stumbled. None of us is perfect. But by God's grace, he continues to persevere us, that we would live for him, and that we would trust in him. So now the team is going to uh, close us in songs, and the men are going to come forward with the offering. Happy Easter to you.